You're listening to the podcast of the biopharmaceutical section of the American Statistical Association. Statistics. 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 Hi, folks, and welcome to the show. This is Richard Zink, and you're listening to the podcast of the biopharmaceutical section of the American Statistical Association. A very happy Thanksgiving to you all, and I hope everyone is safe and healthy and that you are successfully social distancing. This is episode 83, and it features a conversation with Carrie Goh and Elaine Hoffman about vaccines. And it's a timely episode as there have been several press releases about efficacious COVID vaccines in the news recently. As a reminder for these discussions, please note that people are sharing their personal opinions, so please don't overinterpret their comments as representing the groups or organizations with which they participate. Now let's start the show. So hi folks, our topic today is vaccines. I'm speaking with Carrie Goh, Deputy Director of Biostatistics at Sanofi Pasteur, and Elaine Hoffman, Head of Vaccines and Operations in Statistical and Quantitative Sciences at Takeda. Good afternoon, and thanks so much for being here. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Well, let's start off with the basics. How did uh, you become interested in statistics? You know, I've always been interested in math. I competed in math tournaments since elementary school. Uh, In college, I started out in electrical engineering and computer science. I was in the communications area of electrical engineering, which ended up being a lot of signal detection and pattern recognition, which in turn has a lot of hypothesis testing. So having worked several summers for military contractors, I got bored of the application. Uh, so I took the methods and went in search of a new application and found uh, statistics. And how did you get into the uh, biological uh, sciences and applying statistics? So I got into the biological sciences because my thesis advisor was in oncology research. And so my thesis was on predicting transitions in in cancer. Very good. And uh, Elaine, how about you? How did you start this journey in statistics? Well, I attended Miami University in Oxford, Ohio, and um, ended up majoring in math and statistics. And when I was graduating, I really didn't know what I wanted to do. So I had a professor suggest graduate school and to apply to a program at UNC called Biostatistics. Um, So I went down and interviewed and was offered a spot on the NIEHS training grant, um, but I had no idea what it meant. So when I went back to Miami, I um, told my professor what was offered and he told me it was an amazing opportunity. Um, So I immediately called UNC accepted and started my master's and continued on with my PhD in biostatistics, and I haven't looked back since. Can you give us a brief overview of uh, what you currently do uh, at your companies? Uh, Lane, how about you? What do you do at Takeda? Well, I'm head of vaccine statistics and head of delivery for the statistical and quantitative sciences organization at Takeda. I lead a team of statisticians who are working on dengue, norovirus, and Zika, and recently, we are um, Takeda has partnered 
with a couple of the pharma companies on working on a COVID vaccine in Japan. Um, in addition, I oversee the relationship with the Takeda's CRO partners. And so I've been working on establishing dashboards and oversight processes and metrics for the delivery of our portfolio in statistics and programming. Great. And Carrie, how about you? What do you do at Sanofi? And I'm the project statistician on a few projects. So I generally oversee the clinical development plans, study designs, the analysis plans, and anything else quantitative that goes into a licensure submission. So my manager likes to use the term quantitative leadership. I also have some transversal roles. So for example, I'm interning statisticians. I handle most of the randomizations, and I participate in setting standards and procedures for the statistics function so we can be more efficient. Great, and thanks for both of you being here. We're talking about uh, vaccines, and and with the recent COVID-19 outbreak, there's been a lot of discussion about the potential for vaccines. We've even heard um, about a couple successful candidates that are, are currently being reported on in the news, and, and hopefully we could talk a little bit about vaccines in the context of um, COVID-19. But Let's start simple. Uh, what is a vaccine and, and what is the goal of a successful vaccine? I'll take a stab at it. So generally, vaccines contain you know, a kill, weakened, or a part of the germ, such as a protein, uh, that causes the disease to stimulate your immune system to increase immunity that, to that disease. So the goal of a successful vaccine is generally to prevent disease. To think of vaccines as the public health arm of the pharmaceutical industry, you know, clinical development and vaccines, we're trying to prevent disease, not treat it. And it's a pretty exciting time to be working in vaccines during this COVID-19 pandemic because there's been an explosion of interest and exposure to vaccines. And, um, you know, there's some, there's some good news and hope out there now for the COVID-19 pandemic. Yeah, indeed, a very uh, exciting time. And what would you say are some of the major classifications of vaccines? I guess as I see it, um, you know, we have live vaccines and they use a weakened or attenuated form of the germ that causes the disease. So MMR is an example of that, I believe. Uh, we have inactivated vaccines that use the killed version of the germ that causes the disease. Uh, flu vaccines, well, most of them anyway, uh, are examples of this. We have conjugate and also polysaccharide vaccines that use a part of the germ. And meningitis vaccine is an example. Uh, we have toxoid vaccines that use a toxin or poison made by the germ that causes a disease. So diphtheria and tetanus are examples of this. And in general, I think live, live attenuated vaccines generally give a stronger immune response than the others. Uh, but there are rare cases in which live attenuated vaccines can lead to the actual infection. Uh, whereas it is possible to catch the disease from an inactivated or a conjugate or a toxoid vaccine because it's only you know it's only part of the vaccine. Uh, but on the other hand, they might have less uh, immunogenicity, so you might need a booster shot for those. So, for example, there was a recent outbreak in Sudan caused by live polio vaccine. You know, here in the U.S., we used to use live or oral polio vaccines, but since about 2000 or so, uh, we use only inactivated polio vaccines, the shots, because polio has been eradicated in the U.S. So that's a really good answer. I would just add that the 
current um, vaccines that you're hearing a lot about with COVID-19 are called messenger RNA vaccines, which are kind of a new approach. Um, and some of the other COVID vaccines are um, a vector vaccine and a, um, I think it's called adjuvanted uh, protein vaccine. But don't ask me to give you many more details on what all that means. <laughs> I will not. Uh, there will be no test at the end of this. Uh, and what are some of the goals of phase one development of vaccines? Is it similar uh, in the case of uh, drugs that it's uh, primarily focused on, on safety and uh, sort of maximum tolerated dose? I don't necessarily think so. I mean, certainly we focus on safety. Um, and, you know, there's smaller numbers of participants, but we also usually at least estimate immunogenicity. Um, sometimes we use them to choose formulations and numbers of doses. Sometimes we use phase one to look for alternative biomarkers that might indicate immunogenicity. And there are probably some other purposes that I can't think of that maybe Elaine could think of. No, I agree. It's mainly, I think, about safety and whether the vaccine produces an antibody response in the body, you know, dose selection. And how do we quantify the effectiveness of vaccines? Um, for example, patients may not get sick themselves, but they may still be able to transfer the virus to other individuals. Uh, I'll address efficacy here instead of effectiveness, since that's what I'm familiar with. You know, we usually use illness as an endpoint. So I personally have not encountered a vaccine study that measures whether the participant is still infectious, although there are others who have mentioned that possibility, so there may be some out there. Uh, that said, um, efficacy can usually computed as one minus relative risk. In other words, one minus the proportion of participants in the investigational group who get the disease divided by the proportion of participants in the control group who get the disease. So usually success requires showing efficacy greater than zero. So, for example, you know, 20 to 50 percent lower confidence limit. So, for example, for the COVID-19 vaccines, according to the guidance, though the point estimate has to be greater than or equal to 50 percent, the lower confidence limited limit should be greater than 30 percent. So, in other words, even with even against a placebo, they still set a bar higher than zero for the lower confidence limit. And even with an active control, uh, for example, high dose flu required showing relative efficacy greater than some number greater than zero. Yeah, I would just add that um, since we're probably talking to a statistical audience, that you could use a logistic regression model and, and look at like one minus the relative risk or hazard ratio. Or if you used a Cox proportional hazard model, you'd look at one minus the hazard ratio when you're look, talking about the vaccine versus a placebo. I think when you talk about effectiveness of the vaccine, uh, it to me sounds like a little bit more like of a uh, population or an epidemiology study to see how well the vaccine works when it's used in um, a real world setting or in a large population. And so it's interesting that Richard, you mentioned that um, patients may still be able to transfer the virus because I ironically was just listening to a talk by Ralph Barrick at the at UNC School of Public Health. And he did mention that there are some types of vaccines where it would prevent the patient from the symptoms of the disease, but they still may be able to transmit the virus to 
to people who were unvaccinated. And I think that you would have to evaluate that in a real world setting. Yeah, that certainly seems like it would be something uh, for consideration, particularly with COVID, since um, there's a lot of a number of individuals walking around who seem to not be getting sick themselves, but uh, able to transfer the virus. And yeah, I was just going to add that I think it's, that's also going to be an important component of how much of the population is actually vaccinated, because if you only had say 30% of the population vaccinated, but they were still able to transmit the virus to those that weren't vaccinated. That leaves 60 to 70%, depending on how many people had a natural infection, uh, still still susceptible to the virus. And how is safety monitored for vaccines? Would most safety considerations be within the first few days of injection, uh, as well as if the patient were to contract the disease? Um, how How do we talk about safety? Well, I think if a participant were to contract the disease for which the vaccine was intended to prevent, we would consider that a lack of efficacy instead of a safety issue. So, for example, if you had if you were testing a flu vaccine and somebody contracts the flu, that's considered a lack of efficacy. But that said, you know there are some different types of safety collected in vaccine trials, at least different than drug trials. So, one is immediate reactions. So typically, those are allergic reactions within 30 minutes of vaccination. So if you ever, for example, get allergy shots after the vaccination, usually they'll make you wait in the office for half an hour for for this reason. Another is what we call flicit reactions. So that's the one that you are referring to the first few days after the vaccination. And those are typically expected reactions, such as redness at the ejection site, pain, fever, uh, usually they're measured within 7 to 14 days after vaccination. You know, you get stuck by a needle, you expect it to hurt. There's nothing surprising about that. And then we collect the typical adverse events that are unexpected and self-reported, similar to that of drug trials. And sometimes there are even rarer adverse events to monitor for particular vaccines. So, for example, Yalbera syndrome. Generally, regardless of the power of the trial, the health authorities want to see a certain number of people exposed to the vaccine before licensure to ensure a certain confidence of safety, you know, say 3,000 participants to detect a one in 1,000 event. So, you know, we try to catch those rare events. And since vaccines are generally given to healthy people, you know, we consider safety to be of the utmost importance. Yeah, I think that's a really important, and I think that's what, um, you know, the both Pfizer and Moderna have reported out their efficacy results. And, you know, a lot of people are asking why they're not able to file with the FDA, and that's because there is a minimum standard of safety data that needs to be collected or time since vaccination. I would also add that the what Terry was alluding to is the reactogenicity um, you know, the redness or the, you know, when you got chills after vaccine is actually sometimes considered a good sign. It means that your body is actually reacting um, in a positive way. It's producing antibodies to the vaccine that was, you know, just put into your body. And I do think that, that the pharmaceutical companies do take safety very seriously. Um, I'm sure everyone is aware that, you know, during some of these COVID-19 vaccine clinical trials, the studies were completely paused for periods of time when a participant had a potentially serious adverse event, they wanted to make sure that it was not being caused by the, the vaccine. So safety is taken very seriously. 
certainly in hearing about the pause trials in the news, it, it, it certainly caused people to panic about, um, you know, the potential for the vaccines to work and, and you know, provide some sort of benefit to, to patients. Carrie, what was the, the one adverse event that you mentioned that um, you said was particular to vaccines? Uh, actually, it's not particular to all vaccines. It's just particular to uh, to some vaccines. Uh, Guillain-Barre syndrome. Uh, what what is what's what is that syndrome? It, it, it's caused by it's a muscle weakness caused by the immune system. Oh, so I see. it's like an immune, like an autoimmune response. I think. I see. I see. But different vaccines may have different types of you know what we might call adverse events of special interest. I see. Yeah, that you would prospectively sort of define and and look for in a in a trial mm-hmm. sure now can you describe the general characteristics of phase two and three development is it typically the learning yeah. in phase two and then confirming things in phase three is it trying to identify schedules in phase two uh, what typically goes on i think it typically you could think of it as similar to you know drug trials before phase two is a, usually a randomized trial looking at safety and immunogenicity, which is kind of like the development of antibodies. In my experience of the studies that I've worked on, you're not really looking at any efficacy endpoints until phase three. Um, Phase three is usually a randomized efficacy trial with safety and immunogenicity endpoints too. Phase three studies can tend to be very large. Some vaccine trials could have upwards of 20, 30, or even I think some flu vaccine trials have had you know, 60 to 80,000 patients. And often there's additional phase three type studies, such as lot to lot consistency trials, comparing different batches of the manufactured vaccine, co-administration studies, you know, how does this vaccine work with other vaccines? There's oftentimes because you're only doing one efficacy trial, there's relationships that can be established, such as immunobridging between different age groups. There's correlative protection, kind of like looking for a biomarker. And then there is, you know, unusual paths for uh, regulatory approval um, for some vaccine candidates. The anthrax vaccine was approved based on the FDA animal rule, which is a non-traditional approach using an animal bridging strategy. And this would be possibly considered if there was no outbreak of a disease during the development of vaccine. Um, But there's a lot of requirements that apply to use that. You know, in general, vaccine trials are larger than drug trials. Uh, as a preventative therapy, we don't have to limit enrollment to people who have the particular disease. So, uh, as Elaine mentioned, efficacy trials have tens of thousands of participants. Uh, even, you know, phase three immunogen- immunogenicity trials just have thousands of participants. You know, so, for example, you know, if we have, if we already have a correlate of protection that's been established in the uh, efficacy trials that Elaine mentioned earlier, then often we don't have to rerun another efficacy trial. We can just run a phase three immunogenicity trial instead. And I guess as a follow-up to the large size of vaccine trials, and and certainly with something uh, with COVID, with so many companies getting into the development of drugs or vaccines, how is it possible to find um, a sufficient number of patients um, or 
not necessarily patients or a, a sufficient number of participants um, who will to be enrolled in the trial. Uh, is, is this is this been sort of a, a new challenge given um, the interest in, in COVID and, and the, the threat of COVID? Or, um, or, or does it lead to the potential opportunities to sort of uh, work within master protocols uh, and, and, and develop drugs or vaccines in that way? Yeah. I actually have no experience with this one, so. <laughs> um, I mean, I've just, yeah, I don't have a lot of experience either. I think that there are some master protocols that are being used with the COVID-19 vaccines. I don't think that it's usually a problem getting patients into vaccine studies. I think oftentimes the problem becomes whether you get enough cases that you have to have. In, for instance, if it's a mosquito-borne illness, you have to be in a place where there's an outbreak or like this summer when the, the COVID cases were really low, I think some of the studies were, it was taking more time to get the number of cases that you need. And that's what the studies are powered on, not on the sample size, but on the, the event rate. Right. So, you know, it, mostly only the, you, you get most of your information from the cases, as Elaine noted. And wasn't it in, I'm trying to remember in Pfizer uh, COVID trial that they uh, they were going to have, have an interim analysis that, you know, so many cases, and then they ended up having to wait uh, because they felt like that they didn't, they weren't going to have enough evidence. I don't remember the details, but. Yeah, I think, it, you know, it's a, it's a time to, it's, you have to wait till you accrue the number of cases before you can perform your analysis. Not, right. at, a and, time, not at a certain time point. Right. And so it's it's impossible to time it, you know, to yeah. say, oh, well, we're going to have our analysis in June. Exactly. <laughs> you never know if we have the cases. We had, a, we had a flu trial in which we had to wait a whole nother flu season to get enough cases. Right. Wow. Wow. Yeah, I guess that's uh, the, the tricky thing about uh, event endpoints and, you know, trying to predict, you know, the enrollment and dropout and the rate of uh, events coming in and yeah I, I can imagine that that's um a certain lack of control that you have on the trial that's that's probably a bit nerve-wracking um um since uh we we haven't gone to like the point of like directly releasing mosquitoes or other <laughs> things to help <laughs> increase the uh the event rates so um, well, they have malaria trials in which they do, they've done exactly that. I mean, that's, that, those are called challenge trials in general. And we, there are a few diseases that have had them. Uh, you know, malaria comes to mind, but I, you know, I'm sure there are others that I can't think of at the moment. But for COVID, I'm sure that would be unethical <laughs> to do that. And what would you say are some of the, the major challenges of vaccine development? Well, from my perspective, um, I mean, it's a very, they're very costly to develop. Um, I don't think that it's exactly well understood how the, the human body's immune system reacts to vaccines or, or exactly how the vaccine works in some cases. Um, you know, like I alluded to earlier, if there's not an outbreak of the disease, it's hard to evaluate a vaccine. Um, 
and it takes some time. Well, up until the COVID world, they took a long time to develop a vaccine. Um, but I think there's some new platforms that are emerging, like this messenger RNA platform that obviously can um, vaccines can be developed in a much faster timeline. So I think it's going to be really exciting to see how the COVID experience um, is taken forward into other uh, infectious disease areas. As Elaine said, you know, even though developing a vaccine in you know, 12 to 18 months or however long it took COVID uh, vaccines to be developed, I don't, that may not be the new normal, but some of the aspects of this you know, may, may very well become the new normal. You know, I think there'll be more accelerated, uh, accelerated designs, for example. And we, we've talked about this, that um, you know, patients take drugs to um, treat a disease that they already have, and vaccines are, are given to healthy people to, to prevent the, the spread of disease or the, or the likelihood of experiencing it in the future. Um, what steps are taken to, to promote new vaccines so that the largest number of patients uh, take advantage of them? Um, well, um, you know, I see a few broad things that are often addressed. So the first may be awareness and access. We, you know, we can run public service announcements. Uh, we encourage doctors to remind their patients to vaccinate and to remind them to return. Uh, for example, when I got my shingle shots, I kept getting reminders from the pharmacy to make an appointment for the second shot because you have to get it within a certain period of time. They're direct to consumer ads, just like for drugs. Uh, we have school entry laws that encourage people to get vaccinated for school entry. Uh, we link immunization to certain benefits like uh, WIC services. We have, you know, we have the expansion of clinics. Uh, for example, there's a drive-by flu clinic in my area where, you know, it's free and you don't even have to get out of your car. You just drive by and somebody's outside your car and they give you a shot. Uh, they try to make it very easy for you. You know, people have advertised places that are less expensive for people who are, you know, um, uh, are cost-conscious. So, you know, they might encourage you to get your shot at a pharmacy instead of a doctor's office. So the, you know, note the CDC and other health authorities have a focus on education and awareness. So it's nothing new that I'm saying here. Uh, and I think the other aspect is to overcome resistance. You know, there's always going to be a certain part of the population who isn't going to trust vaccines or who doesn't need them. Um, you know, and for that, you know, we can encourage doctors to encourage their patients to vaccinate. You know, people often will listen to their doctor more than they'll listen to, you know, a big pharma company. We can provide better information about the benefits of vaccines. You know, for example, how terrible the diseases used to be before vaccines were, were, were common. You know, vaccines these days often are so effective, we often forget about the disease it prevents. I mean, how many young people these days know someone who had polio? You know, seeing somebody whose kids got the disease, 
might convince someone to take the vaccine. You know, in other words, don't shame people, but you know, to keep the message positive. Yeah, no, I think those are all good points. I think the public health awareness is an important, um, as well as being transparent with the public on what a vaccine can and cannot do. Um, so I think we just need better information available to the public, uh, more consistent message. Um, you know, there's a lot of diseases out there that have been eradicated because of vaccines. You don't hear about smallpox um, in the U.S., so it's, but it's easy to forget that those diseases ever existed. I, I think this COVID-19 pandemic is going to bring about a completely new awareness to the need for a vaccine because most people have never experienced anything like this in their entire life, and hopefully we won't again. But it's um, obviously highlighting if the vaccine is, is effective and safe, how, um, how important a vaccine is to our wanting to get back to some sort of um, normalcy in the world. Yeah, it's an, an interesting point about um, with COVID happening in recent years, I think particularly last year with uh, several uh, incidents of measles uh, popping up over the U.S. and that hopefully, um, you know, people's awareness of, of the importance of vaccines um, uh, will encourage them to uh, get vaccinated and stay vaccinated. So, um yeah, hopefully uh, we can and proceed with that. And and Carrie, I, I had a question about that drive-through um, uh, vaccination. Um, uh, do you have to stop your car? Clinic? Yeah. The, the, <laughs> yes. <laughs> they haven't gotten that far yet. <laughs> I, I didn't know if you so. just. <laughs> I didn't know if you just rolled down the window and they sort of through it through the open window so you didn't even have to stop or not um i get that's probably in the works but um you know people are so busy um so we've talked a lot about covid-19 and and the challenges to to um develop a vaccine and and certainly you know we we've been greeted with positive news in in the last few weeks about um some potential vaccine candidates. Um, and do you think our preparation or, or the lessons that we've learned now will, will help us prepare um, or, or be more prepared in the future um, to potentially develop the infrastructure needed um, so that we can sort of come together um, as, as an industry and, and, and and develop something um, as, as quickly again, or perhaps even more quickly in the future? I certainly hope so. I mean, if we haven't learned from this, then, <laughs> then that's really depressing. Um, no, but I mean, it's, it's amazing how the industry has pulled together. I mean, some of these platforms that I hear about, the variety of pharmaceutical companies coming together, sharing of data, um, companies working together to support um, other companies manufacturing and distribution. So, I mean, I think that the whole, you know, industry and the whole world is really kind of um, working together in a really great way. And I, and I hope that we can continue to tackle, um, you know, diseases in this, this respect um, and make a lot of progress. You know, those are really good points, line, and and I just wanted to add that, yeah, I think with the COVID uh, development, 
there's been, you know, part of it's been, you know, unprecedented cooperation you know, between, uh, you know, companies in the pharmaceutical industry. Although I think, you know, I think our industry is pretty competitive, I mean, pretty cooperative compared to, to many industries. You know, it's not like we're hoping that somebody else's drug fails. You know, in general, you know, we, I think um, different companies partner with each other all the time. Uh, you know, certainly in the statistics realm, um, you know, you see something in the paper, you ask somebody, oh, how did you do that? And almost all the time, you know, they'll, they'll let you know. It's not like people are trying to hoard statistical methods. Yeah, just just so long as um, my drug gets <laughs> to the finish line first. No, okay. Um, no, it it is nice to see the uh, the collaboration in the industry and, and even with uh, the FDA and putting a lot putting out a lot of their COVID guidances on um, quality issues, um, documentation issues, statistical issues related to. Um, uh, everything that's happened with uh, COVID and, you know, how, you know, some trials had been interrupted and um, just creating a lot of st statistical complexity. Um, yeah, they should, the, the FDA certainly did a great job in, in putting all that together and, and working with um, sponsors. And um, so, yeah, hopefully we can continue to, to see these kinds of things uh, continue in the future. Yeah, I think it's been amazing how much of the, the protocols and the analysis plans have been shared with the ongoing trials, as well as the, the data readouts. I mean, there's a lot of information that's, you know, in the public realm now, just with the two um, COVID trials that have had interim analysis readouts. So, you know, for data transparency, it's kind of a, a somewhat of a breakthrough as well. Yeah, and hopefully, I guess for the larger the public that um, they'll uh, maybe improve their statistical literacy or, or clinical trial literacy. Um, <laughs> but that job, maybe that's too much to ask for. security for us, though, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Anyway, I want to thank you, guys, thank you both for your time today, um, and I wish you continued success with your research efforts thank you richard yeah, thank you thanks for giving us this opportunity and there you have it episode 83 on vaccines now do you have an idea for a podcast i would say that you probably do are you part of a scientific working group that wants to show off their research do you want to discuss a new book that you've published do you have a session at an upcoming meeting and think people may benefit from a primer on the topic do you want to dig deeper into an important topic that may not get the appropriate bandwidth at conferences? Let's talk about it. Send me an email at richard.c.zinc at gmail.com. That's richard.c.zinc at gmail.com. In the meantime, continue social distancing, wear your mask, and keep you and your loved ones safe. Until next time.